introductory remarks and then we'll uh, take a look at chapter one and uh, try to proceed through this marvelous little book. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, your servants. We are your children. We have the distinct privilege of being able to approach the throne of grace and we do so, Father. And we ask that you bless us together, help to teach us, open our hearts, open our minds, that we might understand from the word of God how we are to conduct ourselves as long as we remain here. Bless us together as we study, we ask in Christ's name, amen. All right. The introduction, if you remember, we spoke of James writing a letter somewhere around the 40s AD, in mid-40s, most scholars say. That's early. That's really early in the Bible. One of the earliest uh, books of the Bible, of the New Testament, that is to say. And... uh, He is, when he writes this, the leader, perhaps what we would call, I don't know what we would call him, the bishop down at Jerusalem. He is the head of the Hebrew church um, in Jerusalem, which was preserved, I think, supernaturally by God. But many of the Jewish Christians were scattered, were persecuted in Jerusalem and forced to flee their homes and their city. And so they have the, uh, uh, the Jewish Christians, those who have named the name of Christ, to whom this letter is addressed, have fled Jerusalem. And they've gone all around. I'm not going to say how far they go. You know, it depends on the time. But in the mid-40s, they, were, they had fled to places like uh, what modern-day Turkey or what was known then as Asia um, and Ephesus, Colossae, those kinds of things. They've gone to probably Athens, Greece, um, places like that. They have fled. Some have gone to uh, Egypt um, and, and so forth. But they have been forced out of their homes And as they go, they are professing Jesus Christ. And so therefore, they come under persecution wherever they go. And they are tested and tried in their faith. My goodness, that's a hard way to begin, isn't it? It certainly is. But that's kind of the circumstances with the book of James. Uh, I do want to say something as I was studying and praying over this book. And uh, all through the week, and I said to myself, you know, I was thinking about the letter itself. James writes this letter. It's an encyclical letter. That is in its intent. It was designed to go out to people in a variety of places and be passed around, if you will, and copied probably and spread throughout the Mediterranean area where these people had fled to. 
It was directed at them, but it went out as an encyclical, something to be read by everyone that could. I think that's marvelous. Think about that. We have it. It came to us. It not only was successful as it went out there, but it has come across the centuries and the millennia to us. I think it's just marvelous. We have this letter, and uh, 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 it is instructive to these Jewish people primarily, but as we know, to every believer. And so that's why it's in the book. Uh, That's why it's in the word of God. God had intended this letter to be an encyclical, and boy, did it succeed for 2,000 and some years. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing. And so as I look at it in that regard, I am so impressed uh, at this little letter that's seemingly in the New Testament is one of the smaller books, uh, and, and it's just amazing of what it did accomplish accomplished. This morning's uh, lesson, uh, uh, Matt always asks me, what is the title to the morning lesson? So this morning's lesson is called Spiritual Schizophrenia, and I refuse to spell the word schizophrenia, okay? Uh, (laughs) Spiritual Schizophrenia. I'll explain that when we get down here shortly, early on. The Uh, James uses a word, we've just checked it twice. There is a word unique to James, I believe, isn't that true? Uh, uh, Yes, James is the only writer in the New Testament to use this word uh, in the Greek. It's uh, amazing. It is translated here, double-minded, down in verse 8. And it's from there that I derive the title, um, Spiritual Schizophrenia. And then I, was, uh, uh, then I was aware, you do know that, that the APA professionals, American Psychological Association, and all of those people associated with that would scream at me and say, well, you're using the word schizophrenia wrong. Uh, and, I'm, I, and then I would tell them I'm using it in the popular sense. Um, uh, Uh, Schizophrenia is a complex and complicated disorder uh, in the human beings. But here we want to focus on uh, what we call the dual personality or the dual mind, double-minded man. Uh, And we want to get to this this morning, the text of the scripture. Um, Trials and temptations, verses 2 through 18, the first section of this letter, where James lays out basically what he's writing about. My brethren, count it all joy, verse 2, when you fall into various trials. All right, I already failed goodness, the man writes a single letter and I have to feel guilty. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Do you count it all joy when you come into trials? 
We've got something to learn, don't we? My brethren, count it all joy. Joy when we fall into various trials. But remember, those people are out there. They have fled Jerusalem. They are poverty stricken, most of them. They are even persecuted in the places they have gone to. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. But this is the reason. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Wow. But let patience have its perfect, its complete work, that you may be complete, perfect, and complete, lacking nothing. Wow. Would to God that I can reach that level. I don't claim it. I really don't. I sometimes come under the least of trials and I'm apt to complain about it (laughs) before I accept it with joy, okay? But he is saying that we should count it all joy. Uh, If any of you lacks wisdom, he brings up the topic of wisdom. We've already made a reference to that. I'll, I'll explain it again. Wisdom is not intellectual achievement. Wisdom is knowing those things which please God and the, the things, the factors in our life that would please God and what God is pleased with. That is wisdom as the scripture uses it, not intellectual achievement. If any of you lacks that wisdom, let him ask of God. As a matter of fact, it's the only place you can get it. One place, God. Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Okay, first, we don't even, or I, I'm going to use me as a subject. I don't even... Uh, count it all joy all the time when I run into trials. Although I do want you to know after I've experienced it for a while, I begin to understand. I do. (laughs) It just takes a while. I'm kind of dull and the Lord knows it. And so he works patiently with me to get me to that place where I can see the wisdom of what he's doing. Even if it hurts. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Whoa. Do you have wisdom? Let you ask of God. He gives to all liberally, all liberally. This is the God that we worship. He is not cheap. He is not, what do you call it, stingy with his gifts. He gives gifts to all who ask liberally. How often do we see that? In our churches, for instance, sometimes we find people with high levels of skills that are useful in the house of God. And they have absolutely no status. They're just simple people. But he gives to all liberally. 
And our God does not say, well, if you'll do this, if you'll do that. God is perfect. God gives liberally. He is not cheap and stingy with his gifts. So that the, the meanest person, I use that in meaning uh, the lowest of persons, if you think yourself low, the lowest of persons can have liberal gifts from God. But you must ask and you ask uh, of God who gives to all and will and it will be given to him. But then there's a condition. Verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Here in Illinois, we don't have that. We can't make that analogy <laughs> to oh. Lake Springfield never gets into that place. Um, but anyway, uh, well, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And let not that man, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a, there it is, double-minded man, a spiritually schizophrenic, a spiritual schizophrenic, unstable in all his ways. He's not talking about you guys. If you think that every person that has a moment of doubt about whether God will grant something or another, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the double-minded man, the schizophrenic, the one who serves two masters, whose religion is basically two-faced. They come to church and they're posing as Christians and obedient people, but they live their lives in exactly the opposite way. No, he's not talking about... if. If he's talking about mere doubting for a moment, temporary doubting and stuff, you all lose, right? Yes. All of us probably experience moments of doubt that we're going to receive this or that from the Lord. And sometimes we don't receive it. God is wise in in the administration of his gifts. He's not going to give you a gift that you're going to, that's going to mess over you. He knows how to give gifts, but he is liberal in giving them. And so this God doesn't, what? Our God, Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God that we worship is liberal to all. And he gives gifts to all. I think pastor, hasn't he recently just talked about that? Uh, You know, measuring your gifts, trying to figure out what your gifts are. I think the pastor did preach to that effect. And uh, it's a a good one. What are your gifts? God gives them liberally to believers. And sometimes the most humble person has the greater gifts. Let's go to the double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. We have them in our churches. I'm sorry to say 
Would that it wasn't true. But they're there. You need to measure your own self to make sure that you're not one of those who are double-minded, literally two hearts. A heart for the world and a heart for Jesus Christ. You can't hold the two. That's being double-minded. Unstable in all your ways. One of the compelling lessons of the book of James is that we Christians have to adopt and practice a specifically Christian way of living. We have to cast off those things that we had before and put on those things that are given by Christ. We are to put on a Christian life and to cast out all those other things, to cast them off. I think one of the... You may, you may differ with this. I was saved as an adult. I was going on 23. I was 22 going on 23. By that time, I had gathered a worldly lifestyle, so to speak. And so it was a rather serious process of changing that and putting off that, all those things that I had before, and putting on Christ. I can remember our pastor talking about that, and I can remember the man who brought the gospel to me talking about that too. But I'm glad now I know that it may seem, but because, like I said earlier, I'm a little slow. And so I had, to, I, I had to experience the difficulties of putting off the world and not being a double-minded man. And so that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about a person that has a little doubt now and again, but a person who regularly has doubt, and is pretending uh, uh, to ask for wisdom from God. He's double-minded. Let the lowly brother, verse 9, glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Gee, that rhymes. Because as a flower of the field, he will Pass away. Mm hmm. Let the lowly brother, by the way, you notice what the, uh, James is doing. He has these little aphorisms. You remember our discussion about aphorisms? He's presenting one now. Um, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. I don't want to be too graphic, but when the sun is risen and it withers the grass, 
its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. He's using a man as a flower that grows up. I'm reminded now that I'm 81 going on 82, I'm reminded of that every time I look in the mirror in the morning (laughs) to go to shave. I ain't pretty. (laughs) There might have been a time when I uh, was prettier as a youth and uh, so forth, but no longer. The The grass is fading. The heat of life is withering. Ah, who cares? I wasn't meant for this world. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Does anybody know the song? (laughs) It's an old hymn. Um, uh, My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Amen. And so uh, uh, all of these things which might have concerned me as a youth and that stuff no longer bothers me. but I'm reminded of it when I see myself in the mirror. So anyway, uh, uh, the burning heat of life has withered the grass. Its flower fails and the beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. One of the things that is going on is that uh, with this thing about rich people, which shows up prominently in the book of James, it's kind of interesting. Is he talking about rich people who are not Christians or is he talking about Christian people? I don't know. I'm going to accept possibly both. The truth still applies. Uh, blessed is the man who endures temptation. The, uh, but before I go to that, let me finish the th- thought about rich people. Um, You know, it seems like human nature that the well-to-do, the wealthy, have to work less hard to gain acceptance in the world. It binds their way, so to speak, into a lot of things, but it is also a trap. And that's what he's talking about here. A rich person Better be careful, because it's a trap. And it will blind you. And be reminded that you're just like the same flower in the field that will perish. But let's move to this next one. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There are two things going on in these next few verses. It's a discussion of temptation, and then a little later about uh, um, a, a temptation and then uh, uh, that which comes from within. Tempted. It's about temptation. And it says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to him who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Do you believe that? I want to hear an amen. Our sins are not God's fault. They're our fault. They belong to us. God does allow us to be tried, puts us to trials. He does so for a specific reason, then that is to make you solid as a rock. After you have succeeded in resisting temptation and resisting those things that come against you, the trials and temptation. A trial is one thing, a temptation is another. And he's making a distinction here. Trials are those things that come from the outside. And they test our faith. Don't, don't kid yourself. They're sometimes really tough. All right? I'm not, I'm not just casting them off as meaningless. Man, the trials of life can be really difficult. But we have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the teaching Spirit of God and the empowering Spirit of God. Do you hear me? Empowering. You have the power to resist. We are, are, uh, but it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Let's try to remember that in our heads as we serve this Lord. God doesn't do those things. He is not testing you so that you might fall into sin. The tests and trials that come from God are intended to develop your Christian character. Remember that. The next time you're faced with a trial, God does that. Do you understand what he did with Abraham? He put his, he put his son on. <laughs> Come on. That's, uh, and out of that one incident where he didn't end up killing his son, the entire world benefited. The world. And Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Hallelujah. Believing God. Let's not be like the double-minded schizophrenic Christian serving two masters, the world. I got the, speaking of that, just as a momentary thing, I was coming to uh, church this morning, driving my little Ford Ranger. I mean to tell you, that is some kind of fine vehicle. It's probably worth up to mm, 1,200, 1,300 bucks, something like that. And I'm going down the, uh, uh, what is that, uh, the loop there, uh, whatever, veterans. And up comes um, a Tesla. A Tesla. I didn't know there was very many of those in town. Do you understand what a Tesla costs? <laughs> Depending on the model, it can range anywhere from 90000 to 130000 there it is. It was a beautiful contrast, wasn't it? My $1,500 uh, 
pickup and this $90,000 car. The, uh, the world is attracted to such things. They really are. They're looking for status. They're looking to have the best thing. There's nothing wrong with having a desire to get a new car. I hate new cars. <laughs> uh, but don't worry, I don't have any. <laughs> um, as a, uh, but I, I really don't like the notion of going out to buy a new car. I, I despise it every time it happens to me. Over the years in life, you have to do that. I don't like it. Uh, and, uh, uh, but some people like to have expensive cars. And they serve the world. They like to go to the finest restaurants. They like all of that kind of stuff put together. They're serving, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Be sure that it doesn't happen to you if you're a professing Christian. He has you in mind. And then he goes into this. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away, verse 14, by his own desires and enticed, not by anything, but by his own desires, drawn to sin, drawn to be enticed. Then when desire, nothing wrong to, uh, with desire, has conceived, he starts comparing it using another analogy, another figure, uh, with a woman giving birth and that process. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So true. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother, brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, not from the world. Then comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He's different. He created the lights of heaven. Are you guys watching the uh, um, shower of, uh, what do you call it? Com uh, asteroids or what? Meteor. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what, right now, there is this uh, shower, meteor shower happening. Uh, if you can find it in the evening hours and stuff like that, you see a lot of things flashing across the sky. It's, uh, uh, but God created that, but he is not like that. He doesn't change from time to time. You know, the moon starts over here and goes over here. All of those celestial things move about, but God doesn't. He's the same yesterday today and forever. He stands beyond the universe in his perfect perfection. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the father of lights. He is the father. He created them. He is not like them. For his, uh, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This morning, I was up early and I went over to my, after, after a sip of coffee, I went over to my uh, 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 Quora page. <laughs> 
And there was a question. Do we have free will? But that's it. Well, I proceeded already this morning to write at least two pages in response to that question. <laughs> and it has to do with this teaching. Uh, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Does man have free will? I know this is a long thing, but I'm going to share it with you just for a minute. I said, well, I've been studying this matter for 50 years of ministry, and I have come up with a simple way of presenting it. But I think it might be of some help. I said, we have to define terms. What does it mean, will? Will is the choosing function of our mind and our uh, existence as human beings. Will. It chooses. Like, did you choose, am I going to church this morning or am I not going to church this morning? And so the will is that function of the mind that chooses between those two alternatives. I'm shortening this a whole bunch. Where did it get its options? Where did they come from? Who brought forth these choices? The the heart. And what is the state of man's heart? Desperately wicked according to the Old Testament. And so that whatever the will gets from the heart, if I'm, if I'm right in this, if I'm characterizing it just for understanding, if the will chooses, do we have free will? Uh, if the will chooses, I say we do. But it's not like that they say it again. The will doesn't make the determination. It's the heart that presents the choices. And the heart is desperately evil. It will never present to the will the choice to choose Jesus Christ as Savior. What must happen? Of his own will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. The first fruit are those which were dedicated to God back in the Old Testament. You know that kind of stuff. So we have free will to choose what we want to. Some of you will recognize my famous, your want to is broken. It's your heart, not your will. My point of it is you still have a will. You choose every day, don't you? Between, uh, I said, uh, bacon and tater tots. You know, you get to choose. You can choose between those two. But the one choice that will never come from the heart is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unless and until they're brought forth, brought us forth by the word of truth. He's talking about the new birth. It isn't your choice. You don't choose to be born again. It is God who does that work. 
and your will is still functioning, but your heart is broken. Your want to is broken. And you need to be born again. Only the powerful word of truth that you could follow that. I don't have time to follow it right now. We have to finish up here fairly soon. But you can follow those words. Word of truth through the scriptures. It's used several times, a number of times in scripture. How are people born again? By the word of truth. It's still true. How do they get the word of truth? From you. That's the one thing you can do. As a Christian believer, you can preach the word of truth. You can share, you can witness, you can, you can uh, communicate the word of God. And it is by that word, preached, witnessed to, shared, that God is pleased to renew the soul. To fix the broken heart that cannot choose. God does that by his own power. You don't have that power. What you have the power to do is to preach, to share, to witness. You do have that. And you can deliver on that. As a matter of fact, you're commanded to. Go you therefore into all the world. You know the Preaching to every creature. Because you don't have the power to change them. You're not going to convince like um, I deal with atheists all the time. I'm not going to reason with them and bring them to a better knowledge of Christ. No, no, no. They have to be converted. But the way I do that, I got a silver bullet for my atheist friends. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. I make sure that that is in my responses because I don't have any power to argue these people into belief. I've read this. I know this. The new birth is accomplished by the word of truth. And so I, com- I commend you to go forth and share this powerful word. The only thing that will convert sinners to believing people. We can do that. We can't do anything else much, but we can do that. And God will use it as surely as we're sitting here. So then, my beloved brethren, verse uh, uh, I didn't, well, I'm going to skip it, verse 19, because we have to deal with that next week. Um, uh, we want to finish. I don't want to take the edge off of finishing about the new birth. And um, Titus 3, 5, are you all familiar with that passage of scripture? Before we leave, would you find um, Titus, which I use constantly about the new birth. In the third chapter. These words. 
For we ourselves at the Apostle Paul, who might have been in the company of one Timothy when he was writing to Titus, another young man in the gospel ministry. For we ourselves were also once, get this, and see where you fit. The Apostle Paul says that we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Not a pretty picture. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's talking about the new birth. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about how God accomplishes that and James puts puts the lid on it, so to speak, by saying it's by the word of truth, by the word of truth. Preach the word. If you want to have power for Christ, preach the word. Uh, you don't have to stand up here to preach the word. You can, you can tell it forth to your coworkers. You can tell it forth to your family. You can tell it forth to all, the, all of those. But that's how it works. It is that way which God uses to save souls. Let us finish. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Father, for the words of James. Now, Lord, we see how broken we ourselves are and how we don't match what he describes. And now we pray, dear Father, that you, the Father of gifts and the great gift giver, you give liberally. We ask, dear Father, that you help us, servants of God, disciples of Christ, give us that strength to follow your leading. We thank you, Father, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.